Welcome to the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's Pharmacine podcast, our regular look at the world of pharmacy with guests from every sector and speciality. If you're a pharmacist, membership of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society will support your career, build your skills and represent your interests. Visit www.rfarms.com forward slash rps hyphen membership to find out more. And now on with our Pharmacine podcast. Today, I'm joined by Professor Miraz Rahman, Professor of Medicinal Chemistry at the Institute of Pharmaceutical Science, King's College, London. Miraz is also the director of the MRC ICASE doctoral training program at King's. And in addition to that, he's the antimicrobial research theme lead at King's College, London. Welcome, Miraz. Thank you. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you with this podcast. You're very welcome. I know a little bit about your career journey, and I think that our listeners would learn a lot from listening to the journey that you've had from being an early career researcher and arriving in the UK. I won't give all of it away. um, And the resilience that you've shown throughout your career. What I want to do is take our listeners through that journey that you've been through And the first question I've got for you is to ask you, how did you get into pharmacy and what did you study? So I grew up in Bangladesh in different districts because my father was a government officer and we used to move from one city to another. When growing up, I don't think I had pharmacy as the profession that I will be taking as a career, I must say. I wanted to be a cricketer. My father used to look after all of our siblings, the education, and we never went to any tutor or any coaching centers, which was the norm at that time. I left home at around 15 to move to Dhaka, the capital. And then there I first saw the pharmaceutical industry. Because Bangladesh is a very different country in terms of healthcare and, and pharmacy. The pharmacies dominate the healthcare settings and the pharmaceutical industry there. So that was the first time I thought about studying pharmacy. In Bangladesh, if you want to study pharmacy, you have to be at the very top of the ranking in the university admission test. So that's how I ended up in pharmacy. Can I ask you, Miraz, didn't you get a job working in a pharmaceutical company while you were studying pharmacy? So the pharmacy training is, again, quite different compared to the UK, where I'm now part of the pharmacy education system. In Bangladesh, the degree is very much industry-focused, and in year three of your degree, you have to spend at least 40 days at a pharmaceutical industry, which is considered as implant training. And then you're exposed to the R&D, manufacturing, formulation, quality control. So you visit different departments, and then you are expected to write quite a comprehensive report, which you present to the management and they evaluate it. So it's a mandatory assessment which you must pass to graduate as a pharmacist. And then you do an M farm, which was two years. So I went to one of the largest pharmaceutical industries, which is called SKNF Pharmaceuticals, which was used to be Smithland and French. And then when they left the country, then it became a more national pharmaceutical company. It was fantastic uh, seeing how actually everything works so you can put the theory into practice. When I wrote the report, I ended up writing a highly critical report. So I was a good academic student. 
So when I produced that report, the management was very surprised that uh, an undergraduate student coming in without any industry experience is essentially criticizing uh, one of the largest firms in the industry. Now, my theory was quite strong, I must say. So I was able to defend my report. I also put an action plan at the end, what the company could possibly do. I said, why not? If you give me the authority, I'm sure I can do this. And in that meeting, they offered me the job you know, of technical development officer reporting just to the executive director. Fantastic. I mean, it illustrates quite a lot of confidence, but I suppose it's the bravery, isn't it? Because you were clearly rocking the boat quite significantly. So was the company able to implement the changes as a result of employing you? I didn't just back down when I was challenged. I think that confidence that despite being an academic person, I was probably not a conventional academic student because I was the captain of the cricket team. Uh, I was doing a, a lot of extracurricular activities. So that gave me the courage. And, and now I'm looking back, I just think, oh, my God, I probably will want people to do this at this age. How was I able to take that on? And when I was only about 19 or 20. So I started to implement the action plan that I wrote. I kind of made a wholesale change in some of the practices. Uh, so the staff were really happy because they felt that they are getting a bit empowered and, and learning about different things. But at the same time, I was learning. My knowledge was theoretical, okay, I must say. So there were senior pharmacists there who helped me to understand and helped me to, to implement some of the proposals that I was proposing, because some of them were unrealistic, having no background in industrial pharmacy at that time. So, yeah, I had a really good time. So I decided to continue doing this full-time job while studying for my farm. Did you end up with a first-class degree with your farm? So you have to take a kind of a mentor as a research supervisor. So I took up a mentor, Professor Chaudhary Mahmoud Hassan, who was the director of the drug administration before coming back to Dhaka University. And he gave me a lot of freedom saying, Miraj, whatever you feel you can do, uh, just go ahead and do it. So I know that you will be doing well in research because you are very organized and you have got the exposure and, and the experience that many students do not have. But where I was really suffering was the academic because we had five subjects to where we had to sit for the exam. And that exam will be happening uh, not when you finish your theory, but when you have finished your whole theory and research. I don't know how I managed it, but I ended up being first class first again. I think I was probably in a bit more mature the way I approached those questions, because some of those I could write or respond from my practical experience in the industry, which the students didn't have that exposure. Well, I'm not surprised the commitment that you've shown and, and, of course, that learning that you would have had in practice. What did you end up doing after you finished your M farm? So I was still at SKF where I was working in the industry at that time as a pharmacist. So uh, I, I just moved up to a more senior role. But then I realized that I was not quite sure I wanted to be in the industry. There were a number of reasons. I was enjoying the job. But then I realized I might want to move into a different industry. That was one, one option. The other option is life can be quite difficult because I remember sometimes I will be getting in, in the, say, at 3 p.m. for my evening shift. 
And the monsoon rain is quite heavy in Bangladesh. And the roads sometimes can accumulate quite a bit of rainwater. And the security officer will tell me, uh, Miraz, uh, you cannot get out now because we have got almost knee-deep water or, or even higher. And so we have to wait until water recedes a bit more than the car can get out. So I just felt now I want to probably do a bit more academic job or academic environment to do some research work at that time. So I ended up joining a private university, which, which is called the uh, University of Asia Pacific, which was one of the first universities in the country to offer pharmacy and stayed there for three years uh, before I moved back to Dhaka University as a lecturer in 2003. And you were presumably employed as a lecturer, but yet to get your PhD. And from speaking to you before, I know that you undertook your PhD in the UK. So could you tell us a little bit about how it was that you arrived in the UK? In 2005, I finally managed to secure the Commonwealth Scholarship for a PhD in the United Kingdom. Uh, so one of the conditions was that uh, I had to secure an offer letter from one of the universities in the UK. I managed to get admission at this uh, UCL School of Pharmacy at the University of Oxford and the University of Nottingham. So it, it was a quite tough decision at that time to decide whether I, I would like to go to University of Oxford uh, doing a PhD in carbohydrate chemistry or come to the School of Pharmacy uh, do a PhD in a cancer drug discovery. So I remember one of our very senior founder of the pharmacy department uh, in Dhaka University, Professor Abdul Jabbar, uh, he said, why are you thinking? Just if you get to go to the School of Pharmacy, you just go there. You don't think about this. And then I also liked the field of research, which was the cancer discovery and working with an industrial setting because my uh, supervisor was Professor David Thurston and who founded a pharmaceutical company called Spiralin at that time. So I just felt, okay, I will be probably more able to use some of my industrial experience coming in here doing a PhD with a group which has a focus in more translational research. So that's how I decided to uh, move to uh, London in 2005 to do a PhD at the School of Pharmacy. If you're enjoying this episode of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's Pharmacy Podcast, don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about it. And remember, if you're a pharmacist, becoming a member of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society will support your career, build your skills and represent your interests. Visit www.rfarms.com forward slash RPS membership to find out more. So am I right in understanding then that your sort of application was funded for a scholarship, but the field of research was very much whatever was offered to you by those institutions. Is that how it worked? During the application process, you have to indicate what is the broad field of research you would like to do, and you, you have to indicate which universities and supervisors you have contacted already. So I could have gone to any of the three, but then I had to make a decision and inform the Commonwealth Commission, okay, I am putting a School of Pharmacy as my preferred choice. Am I right that by that time you sort of narrowed it down to medicinal chemistry? Initially, I uh, worked with GMP implementation and then moved into the research and development as a formulation scientist. So later part of my industrial time was moved working as a formulation scientist. 
And then when I was doing research at Dhaka University, I was working in natural product chemistry. I wanted to do some uh, semi-synthesis, but we didn't have the right infrastructure there to do some semi-synthesis. So I just felt that medicinal chemistry is, is something which I should get trained and start this proper research in synthetic medicinal chemistry or semi-synthesis in, in, in back in Dhaka University. So that was the goal at that time. So uh, uh, I, I, I kind of had exposure to uh, everything except clinical pharmacy, because I, I must say that clinical pharmacy research has now developed in Bangladesh. At that time, there wasn't much clinical pharmacy research going on. That was going to be my question, how you came to want to focus on medicinal chemistry. So if we wind forward a little bit then, you arrive in the UK to undertake your PhD, and I understand you had a young family at the time. How did you make it all work, Miraz? So I came to the UK. Uh, I was married at that time with two young kids. My son was just three years old and my daughter was nine months old. And and my wife, who is also a pharmacist, just did her B-Farm degree from Dhaka University. And she was a very good student as well. So I didn't have any family members. I had one or two friends here. So childcare was the biggest problem. Because we, as an immigrant, as a student, we didn't have access to any public funds. So the amount of money Commonwealth was paying as a stipend uh, was, was very difficult to even just uh, maintain a livelihood here with a, renting a flat, commuting. And, and then if we decided to use the childcare, then almost all the money will be gone for the childcare. Uh, so it was tough. So I had to kind of take on additional jobs. Uh, I was a very good tutor when I was back in Bangladesh. I used to take a handsome amount of money for tutoring for one day a week or sometimes two day a week. So I thought, okay, why don't I try to see whether I can do something like this? And I was lucky that I managed to secure few tutoring jobs in different parts of London. So I, I used to drive the, to those places in the evening or weekends. So weekend, I was doing many sessions. Then I was earning sufficient amount to make sure that uh, my kids could go into these uh, good nurseries. Uh, it was fun time, I must say. Uh, I my children probably suffered a bit, but I was uh, very close to my kids uh, at home. The kids department was always mine and it still is mine. So I used to, whenever I had anything, any time, I used to spend with the kids. I'm interested, Miraz, what, what were you tutoring in? What was the field? Was it chemistry? Was it general tutoring? So I was mainly doing A-level. So I would be doing chemistry and biology. I had a student who were close to, uh, who was going to a school of pharmacy in Medway. So I started tutoring him for some pharmacy when I was doing my PhD. I used to do a, a different types of tutoring. It's essentially whatever opportunity was available, I was up for it. And in among all of this, you were, of course, doing your PhD and leading on your own research. Could you tell us a little bit about your PhD and what your main findings were? I was doing a PhD in DNA-targeted drug discovery. So one of the main challenges that we faced at that time 
The DNA is interesting. You have got only four base pairs, A, D, G, C, and then you have, I should say, four bases, A, D, G, C, uh, but you have to kind of direct compounds that can recognize some specific sequences so that you can target cancer cells and spare the healthy cells. Now, most of the important transcription factors in the promoter regions, we see there are lots of GC rich, so guanine and cytosine rich region, but there are no real building blocks available that can direct them to guanines and cytosines. Most of the natural polyamides like distamycin, nitropsin, those were the basis for designing different drugs. They were all going to prefer these adenine and thymine AT sequences. So my PhD was to try to identify polyamides, starting with smaller building blocks that can recognize GC sequences. Uh, because David uh, worked in a, a field called pyrolobenzodiazepines, which are DNA minor group binding drugs, but covalent binders. So you need some non-covalent components which can direct the covalent component to a specific sequence. So I synthesized hundreds of different compounds with a new type of building blocks, which were bioaryl type of building blocks. These bioaryl means they were linked directly carbon-carbon. So very different compared to traditional imidazole, pyrrol type of building block that you find in the nature. And we were able to identify a new building block, which we called MPB, uh, the methylphenylbenzinamine, which were able to tolerate the GC sequences much better compared to any other building blocks. And we synthesized compounds with that MPB building blocks, which showed exquisite potency. So it's like femtomolar to picomolar activity against uh, cancer cell lines, particularly triple negative breast cancer and pancreatic cancer cell lines. And then moving into in vivo, they showed excellent activity as well. So the PhD project, the original research objective, that was hugely successful. And everyone was very excited, which meant it was decided that it will be patented. So we were trying to get some additional data with other collaborators so that we can file a patent. Certainly sounds very successful. And what's happened to that work, Miraz? Did you get the patents? It was patented and then it was assigned to AstraZeneca and the AstraZeneca used that patent and, and some of the previous patent that came from Davis Lab to form a company and then that acquired Astra like uh, Spirogen. So Spirogen was acquired. So those patents uh, helped really to shape these antibody drug conjugate landscape containing the PBDs. So the AstraZeneca, when they acquired Spirogen, that patent became a part of their portfolio. I'm aware that there has been uh, modifications to the classes of drug that utilized the findings of my PhD research. And also we used some part of that in designing new generation compounds, which helped me to uh, set up a spin-out company with David at King's, uh, which was called Femtogenics at that time which has been now uh, relaunched as Fion Therapeutics after a 67 million funding round. So the findings that I managed to get from my PhD was uh, very helpful. So Miraz, we are going to zoom forward a little bit more now, because I think that you very impressively led the development of new antimicrobial compounds as well as having led the field in terms of anti-cancer agents. 
So I just wondered if you could tell us, how did you apply your existing skills to a completely new area? I was originally trained as a cancer chemist, as you have heard that during my PhD. So when I secured my first academic position at King's in 2012, at the time, the head of the institute was Professor Peter Highlands and uh, Professor Clyde Page was my mentor. So there was a push to develop antimicrobial research at King's because King's had a very strong virology department uh, where it, it was doing really well, but there was not really a chemistry-focused research area, drug discovery uh, and, and medicinal chemistry, where Institute of Pharmaceutical Science wanted to take the next step. There was very little going on at that time. So one of the main focus for me was to establish my independent research group in antimicrobial research or antimicrobial development. I started with my cancer focus when I started at King's, but then gradually started to develop collaborations with different organizations to work in the antimicrobial research area. But I must say it was extremely difficult because there was no one at King's who was doing bacterial research or antimicrobial research per se. Uh, So I had to kind of cold email lots of colleagues in different universities to find out whether they would be willing to screen compounds against these priority pathogens, which has been identified by WHO, which we call the escaped pathogens. So they're mainly uh, two gram positives uh, and enterococcus and staphylococcus. And then you have got these gram negatives like pseudomonas, klebsiella, Acinetobacter. It was quite difficult because I was not finding tractions and, and was not finding someone who would be able to evaluate the compounds, because as medicinal chemists, we were able to design synthesized compounds against different bacterial targets. But you need someone to actually test to see whether these compounds are active. So in 2014, we had a kind of a chance encounter with the UK Health Security Agency. At that time, it was Public Health England. And their gram-negative group leader, uh, Dr. Mark Sutton, so they agreed to test some of our compounds. And uh, it was kind of a real breakthrough because the compounds that we sent were highly active and that meant they were interested in our research. We signed an umbrella agreement which covered IP, which covered revenue, which covered this research infrastructure. And since then, we have had huge success in developing a new generation antifungal agents, antibiotics, There has been uh, 23 joint projects between King's College London and UK Health Security Agency, and they have now become a strategic partner of King's College London in developing antimicrobials. Well, great to hear for for humanity. Are you hopeful that we can create new antimicrobials and bring us back from the edge of doom? I think we can, and we are developing antimicrobials, but uh, there is a problem that needs to be addressed. Otherwise, these new antimicrobials, the academics and small biotics are developing, will never see the market. We urgently need new antimicrobials, but the market is broken. So what happens is you are developing new antimicrobials, but they cannot generate the sufficient amount of funds or revenue once they are marketed. So it's a scenario which is commercially not attractive, that these doom that we are facing, that there is a huge rise in antimicrobial resistance. And by 2050, it is projected that 10 million people will be dying each year. The pharma is not actually investing in antimicrobials, rather leaving the field. Because the infection is, a, is an acute indication. You take an antibiotic for seven days maximum and you feel better 
you get well, you will have no footprint for the rest of your life. So the amount of time you are buying that medicine is relatively a short window. And then we have got a, quite a number of generics which are very cheap, which still do work against, say, 80% cases, which means companies which are developing antibiotics in some cases are getting, going bankrupt after they get the approval. One example is Akiagen, which got bankrupt after they got the antibiotic approved by FDA. So wow. unless these market dynamics change, I feel that we are at the edge of a cliff and millions of people will die needlessly because the commercial world is not considering antibiotics as a lucrative business. What they are missing is the antibiotics underpin the modern medicine the way we know it. You can think about any surgery, anything minor to major, starting from childbirth to very critical, say, neurosurgery. You need an antibiotic post-surgery to avoid infection. Any minor injury, trauma, you need an antibiotic along with the treatment that you are, you are giving. So everything will probably lead to just the pre-antibiotic era where we had no antibiotic to combat infectious disease. So even minor scratch, it could kill people. Yeah, it certainly is a potentially scary future scenario, but I guess it's reassuring to know that somebody with your drive, Meraz, is working in this area. Do you think that you can encapsulate what it is that underpins your drive or rather what advice you would give others, either based here in the UK or internationally, to go on and pursue their own dreams? Sometimes the drive comes from your passion. You'd like to do something which can create a meaningful impact to the lives of people. So when I started with my cancer drug discovery work, I think one of the goal was, and it still is, that I would like to see that the drugs that I'm developing are helping to cure people. So the Fion Therapeutics, which is now taking drugs to clinical trials, and I would like to be the bedside of the patient who is receiving the first drug. So I think that's the same passion that you have for antimicrobials, where you understand the difficulties that globally we are facing. And then perhaps growing up in a country like Bangladesh in the subcontinent where there's lots of poverty and you see people sometimes do not have access to medications and there are a number of infectious diseases there where people are dying because sometimes there are not sufficient antibiotics or antibiotics with the right activity they can access to. So we'd like to make the world a slightly better place in terms of access to medications, in terms of getting drugs that can possibly help them to cure people. But it can also come from many different ways, sometimes from the family, uh, the values that you grow up with, sometimes what you really enjoy. So I think everyone probably complains that I work too hard, including my wife. And, and sometimes I just feel that I'm not working hard enough. I probably enjoy what I do. And, and that's the most important thing. Do what you enjoy, because then it doesn't feel like a chore. It feels like that you are enjoying your life at the same time doing something meaningful, which might have an impact in other people's lives. That's fantastic to hear, Miraz. And I know your passion is infective, almost no pun intended, of course, in that 
students educated by yourself um, are very appreciative of what you're able to teach them within your field. And, and I understand that you've been nominated for numerous teaching awards. What do you think about the education of the next generation of scientists? I feel that as an academic, that's really important because if we want to make any meaningful impact, that will be probably through the next generation. So it's important to instill those values, to give them that opportunity, give them the right education. So I'm probably one of those researchers who is a passionate as the teaching as well. So I don't know which one I would be putting first or second. So I very much enjoy my teaching and I love that interaction with the students. And sometimes I get a clap at the end of the uh, lecture. I feel like that's probably the best moment of the day. And I feel that the students appreciate and engage with the lecturers where they feel that they are trying to make them understand and make them feel valued. So that has been my motto that where whenever I'm taking on any course, I try to give my best in teaching. I just don't do teaching because I have to do it. That's wonderful to hear, Miraz. You're passionate. You've clearly got a huge commitment both to your work, but also to the people around you. You've shown incredible resilience and great leadership skills. You've used your confidence and you haven't been afraid to challenge those in authority where your values and what you believe is right um, has driven you forward. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you, Miraz, and I want to say thank you very much. The pleasure is mine. Thank you very much. It's, it's been lovely to recall some of those life moments and, and speak to you about my journey. Thank you, Miraz. Thanks for listening to the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's Pharmacine podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not tell your friends and colleagues about it? And remember, if you're a pharmacist, membership of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society will support your career, build your skills and represent your interests. Visit www.rfarms.com forward slash RPS hyphen membership to find out more. Look out for the next Pharmacine episode on all good podcast sources. See you next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.